If you've got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you and encourage you to open it to John chapter 8 as we continue our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, we left off last week at verse 30 of John chapter 8. We're going to look just at verses 31 to 36 this morning. While you are sort of getting settled there and locating that, uh, let me just say that you have probably, like me, had experiences where you realize that your self-perception didn't quite line up or match up with reality. The way you thought about yourself wasn't actually in line with what was true about yourself. And the first time I remember having that experience was when I was in uh, grade 7. So I was a little bit of a troubled kid. I was always getting into fights at school, and I thought of myself as being pretty tough, pretty good uh, fighter. And uh, most of that just came from the fact that I was aggressive, wasn't afraid to throw the first punch, that kind of thing in grade seven. But I remember that that sort of self-perception collided with reality at a community center in Vancouver one day. A group of us had kind of ridden on our BMXs down to the community center. We somehow got into some sort of confrontation with, an, with another group of kids. And I ended up picking a fight with this kid with a bull haircut and these kind of big, thick glasses. And I thought, man, I'll just make short work of him. Uh, that was a mistake. Um, I knew I was in trouble the moment he adopted like a proper boxing stance and it turns out he was some sort of boxing protege and the punches just seemed to come from every angle and I realized I wasn't as good of a fighter as I thought I was. It was a bit of a painful lesson. Uh, my self-perception did not line up with reality and I've had other experiences like that that weren't physical. And I think I've shared this with some of you before, but I distinctly remember the first fight that Ilona and I had on our honeymoon. Uh, we, when we took our honeymoon, we went to Hawaii for two weeks. I was 25 years old, and I thought of myself as being a pretty easygoing guy, a pretty nice guy, likable guy, all of that. Uh, pretty mature. I mean, I was 25. I was preparing for ministry and, and all those sorts of things, and the first fight we had. What is there to fight about in Hawaii, right? But the first conflict we had in our marriage was over shuffleboard of all things. Uh, we had gone out, you know, the condo we stayed at that was on the beach had this shuffleboard deck in the, in the courtyard area. And we went out for a nice, relaxing, fun evening of playing shuffleboard together. And she beat me like four times in a row. And I was like, well, that's a fluke. Let's play again. I mean, she was just hitting these crazy shots and I just kept losing. And I think, you know, I kind of started sulking a little bit. And I was like, look, we're not going. She was done. And I was like, well, we're not going back in the condo until I win a game, right? And to this day, I'm, not, I'm still not really sure if she let me win that last game or I actually beat her. But uh, the point of that is not my poor shuffleboard skills, but my lack of maturity, and that I came kind of face to face with that in that moment and realized, look, marriage is not going to be great if I don't sort of get over myself a little bit. <clears throat> we actually meet something similar here in John chapter 8. And I want to read for you verses 31 to 36. It's Jesus in discussion with a group of individuals here, and, and here's what it says. 
says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are, Abra- or that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So the individuals Jesus is addressing here thought of themselves as the good guys. They thought of themselves in one category, but Jesus is about to show them they actually belong to a different category. They thought of themselves as free, and Jesus tells them they are slaves. And that leads me to the first thing I want to say, which is that it is possible to be a slave without knowing it. Now, it's here in John 8 that Jesus utters words that have kind of taken on a life all their own. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a phrase that we have all heard. It's the motto of several universities. It's carved in stone in the original headquarters uh, building of the CIA. It's been used in John Grisham books and movies. I'm not sure any of those applications has it quite right, but its wide-scale usage demonstrates the fact that it has struck a chord with many people. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, before we actually talk about freedom, or before we can really talk about freedom, we need to understand something about slavery. Slavery is an awful thing. A few years back, I read the book, 12 Years a Slave. It made an indelible impression on me. That book is the autobiography, or at least the memoirs, of Solomon Northup, a New York State-born free African-American man who was kidnapped in Washington, D.C. by two con men in 1841 and sold into slavery. It's a fascinating story. They since made it into a movie. But reading a book like that elicits a number of emotions. It elicits anger at the injustice that he suffered. It it, it elicits sadness for the lost years of freedom that he never got to enjoy. The two things that struck me most forcefully as I read that book were the faith that Solomon Northup retained throughout and the sense of powerlessness that slavery brings. Powerlessness is the defining characteristic of slavery. This is what I mean by saying it's possible to be a slave without knowing. It means that there is a power that holds you that you just can't seem to break free from. And I want to say two follow-up things to that. The, the, The reasons... Two reasons or ways that we can be slaves without knowing it. The first way we can do that is by denial. Now, part of what's so interesting in this passage, this dialogue, is the way the dialogue unfolds. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you would think that upon hearing that, the response to that might have been, oh man, that is such good news. 
We want to be set free. How does this freedom work? How do we get it? But that was not the response. Notice the response in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, there's a lot to sort out in what the Jews say here. Was it objectively true that the Jews, the offspring of Abraham, had never been enslaved to anyone? I mean, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, then you know that that is not true. You know that slavery in Egypt was a big part of Israel's history. The entire book of Exodus is about God freeing the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians, from their slavery in Egypt. The preface to the Ten Commandments reads like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I mean, how could they say, look, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. Even after they left Egypt, the the Israelites were subjugated to numerous uh, nations. They lived in exile in Babylon. They were subjugated to the Persians, to the Greeks, and their present situation in the first century was that they were under Roman rule, a Roman occupation. They might not have thought of themselves as slaves, but they certainly weren't free. Now, in a sense, you have to admire their defensiveness, but they were living in denial. I mean, they would say, look, 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 we're God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're the descendants of Abraham. How could we possibly be slaves? Now, we're going to talk about the nature of slavery in a couple of minutes, but denial is one of the characteristics of a person or of the person who is a slave and doesn't know it. Now, it's cliche to say it, but you can think of the proverbial alcoholic who says, look, I don't have a drinking problem. The first of the 12 steps in Alcoholics Anonymous reads like this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And it's not just AA. There's a reason most recovery programs begin with an acknowledgement that you have a problem. The reason is because we're all so good at denial. And until we admit the truth about ourselves, we won't make any progress. Now, it's easy to pick on things like drinking or drug use or gambling and say, yes, I understand people seem to deny that they have a problem with those things and that is part of the problem. But what about all of the other things that control us more than we control them. I mean, smartphone addiction is a thing. Whether it's constantly feeling like you've got to update your social media or check how many likes you've got or doom scrolling on Twitter to know how close the world is to ending or even just watching mindless videos on TikTok or YouTube or playing video games. There are lots of people every bit as addicted and enslaved to their phones as the alcoholic is to drinking. But if you were to ask them, they would probably say, look, I don't have a problem. I can stop anytime. Or what about the person who's consumed with material pursuits? 
right? They're constantly on the hunt for the best deals online, in stores, on Facebook Marketplace. This is what takes up their time. They spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't know. That kind of thing. Again, if you were to ask them, they would probably say, look, well, I don't really have a problem. I could stop that any time. It's just sort of recreation for me. What about the person caught up in a destructive, soul-sucking pornography addiction? can barely go a day without looking at pornographic images. But they're not enslaved, right? They could stop any time. Now, I'm just picking on the obvious ones, the low-hanging fruit. The truth is, we ensnare ourselves in a million different ways. And one of the things I can say with great confidence is that the way out, the path to freedom, is never found by denial. So one of the ways we can be slaves without knowing it is by denial. A second way is by not recognizing the true nature of slavery. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, we've been over this before, but it's a common occurrence in John's gospel that Jesus is talking on one level and his interpreters or his hearers interpret him on a different level. So he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus responds by saying, what, what, you mean go back into my mother's womb? Is that what you're talking about? Or he says to the woman at the well, look, I've got water, I've got living water to offer you that will satisfy your deepest thirst. And she says, yeah, but you don't even have a bucket to draw with. And now he says, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they're like, oh, we've never been slaves of anyone. I mean, what are you talking about? Be a bit like Jesus saying to a group, uh, this to a group of Canadians and them responding with... Yeah, but Jesus, haven't you heard our national anthem? I mean, the true North strong and free, right? We've got laws against slavery. Of course, we're not slaves. But Jesus is not talking about physical slavery. He's talking about a deeper, more insidious kind of slavery. He's talking about being enslaved to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, is what he says. And slavery is the right analogy to describe our spiritual condition. And the reason I say that is because slavery is an identity and not just an activity. Being a slave wasn't just a job. If you were talking to someone who was a slave and you said, and what kind of work do you do? They wouldn't say, well, I, you know, I do slave work, but that's just my day job. They would say, I'm a slave. Slavery is an identity. That's the nature of it. And Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to their sin. Now, this is not the only place we encounter something like this in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this description of the spiritual state of a person before conversion. 
It says there, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I read that slowly because while the word slavery is not used, that is what those verses are describing. describing. When it says, this is how we once walked, it's not talking about the, the casual stroll sort of walking, but about a mindless, kind of a zombie walk that we were in. We walked, it says, following the course of this world. That means we just blindly followed what everyone else was doing. That's a type of slavery. It says we walked following the prince of the power of the air. That is the devil. We just carried out his desires unwittingly. And if those first two slave masters were external, the third one is internal. It says we lived, literally, we walked... In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And the language here describes us as being under a kind of compulsion. We carry out the desires of the mind and the body helplessly. The verse is not saying that all bodily desires are wrong. It's not wrong to desire food or sleep or comfort or sex. The problem comes when those desires become the controlling influence of our lives. Instead of controlling our appetites, our appetites control us. That is slavery. Now, again, we might object to all of this. We might say, well, look, I'm not perfect. I mean, I know I mess up from time to time. I've got some habits that maybe need some fine-tuning. Maybe my anger gets the best of me at times. But I'm not a slave. And when we say all of that, we reveal that we do not understand the true nature of slavery. See, we don't lie. We don't envy. We don't lust. We don't gossip. Because those things are contrary to our nature. But because we feel like we can't help it. And as long as we see those things as just sort of, you know, some rough edges that need to be sanded off and not enslaving passions, then we'll never really advance, never be set free. And so I wonder what might hold you captive today. I wonder if, like the people Jesus was talking to, you think of yourself as free but you might actually be in bondage. Is it possible that your self-perception might not actually match reality? It's possible to be a slave without knowing it, but there's a second truth we need to understand, which is that freedom is found in Jesus. Now, that will sound too simple to some of you, but it is what Jesus says here, isn't it? In verse 32, he says, and you will know the truth... And the truth will set you free. And then in verse 36, he says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And what we need to understand from that is that we need to be set free. 
that we can't just free ourselves and that it is Jesus who sets us free. Now, we can't set ourselves free. Many of us think we can. Somewhere along the way, you've probably heard the account of the two mice that fell into a bucket of cream. Neither one of them could swim. One of them simply gave up and drowned. But the other one fought so hard, he churned that cream into butter and he just climbed out of the bucket. Lots of us think that way and try to function that way. I mean, we'll just work ourselves out of this. We'll just try really, really hard to overcome what enslaves us. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to do anything or make any changes, but willpower alone is not enough to free us from our slavery and our bondage to sin. So can I just gospel you for a couple of minutes? I mean, can I just remind you of the freedom that Jesus gives us? I'm not sure why I'm asking. I'm going to do it anyway. Now, this is not a sermon on the book of Romans, but I want to take you to an important discussion about slavery and freedom that we find in Romans chapters 7 and 8. Right near the end of Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now there's some debate about whether or not Romans 7 describes Paul in his pre-conversion state or after he become a Christian. I'm going to set that aside for now. I think every one of us can identify with what Paul says here. The good things that we want to do, we just can't seem to do consistently. And the things that we know we shouldn't do, we just can't stop doing. And Paul gets to the place where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? If someone doesn't set him free, he's going to be stuck just like that. And here's what he says next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who can set him free? Jesus can and did and does. That's how Romans 7 ends. Now listen to the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Begins like this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Right, we were held captive, now we've been set free. There's a great reflection on the realities of Romans 7 and Romans 8 in the book, The Imperfect Disciple. Here's what the author author says. He says, every day you drift naturally into Romans 7. You don't need any help with that. It's just that your wheels are naturally out of alignment. You're just wobbly, okay? So here's what you do. 
as early in the day and as often as you can, you turn on the light of Romans 8. You bring Romans 8 into Romans 7 and you say, look what I found, everybody. You're the gal who's brought your fiancé home to meet the family, and it turns out he's a much better catch than anybody, including yourself, ever thought you'd end up with. He's a rich doctor slash fighter pilot who spends his summers digging wells for orphans in the Congo or something. And Aunt Bitterness is sitting over there in the corner of the living room, stewing away, ready to take you on a trip down angry memory lane. And you're like, Aunt Bitterness... I'd like you to meet Dr. Gospel. Isn't he dreamy? And there's Uncle Lazy sitting at the table, medicating his feelings with three egg McMuffins, and you bring Doc, Dr. Gospel over, and Uncle Lazy immediately perks up and realizes how embarrassing he looks in the face of such accomplishment. And there's your twin sister, Pride, sitting there in the middle of the room like she owns the place. But when Dr. Gospel walks up to her, she gets up and offers him her seat without a word. See, this is what we need to do. We need to constantly reintroduce the truth of Romans 8 into the experience of Romans 7. We need to introduce the freedom of Romans 8 to the slavery of Romans 7. Slavery was our identity. It is so no longer. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, is what Jesus says. So back to John 8. just want to quickly point out two overlooked truths about the path to freedom that Jesus speaks about here. The first truth is that freedom is found in a relationship with Jesus and obedience to his word. Now, the way I said it makes it sound like it's two separate things, but it's really one and the same. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When Jesus says you will know the truth, he's not talking about a set of propositions. He's not saying, look, you will discover a set of facts that corresponds to reality, and having discovered that, you will be free. He's not saying you ought to go on a journey of self-discovery, and when you do that, you will be set free. He's saying, you will know me, and I will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So notice that freedom doesn't come independent of a dynamic relationship with Jesus. It's conditional. If you abide in my word. That word abide is common in the gospel of John and it always carries with it a relational dimension. So John chapter 15 is loaded with references to abiding. Jesus says things like abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And later in that chapter, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you want to be free? The way to do it is to lash yourself to Jesus 
and do what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I just want to say that an abiding and obeying relationship with Jesus is the only place to find freedom. Listen to the invitation Jesus gives in Matthew 11. These are familiar verses to many of you. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, true freedom is not found in a yokeless, kind of aimless wandering through life. True freedom is found in being yoked to Jesus, bound to him. Second thing we need to remember about the freedom Jesus gives us is that slavery no longer has any place in our lives. So our freedom is real. It's not something we gain for ourselves. It's not a temporary freedom. This is part of what Jesus is getting at in verses 35 and 36 when he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So a slave might take up temporary residence in a house, but it's not his house. He doesn't own it. The son belongs in the house, or not only belongs in the house, but the house belongs to him. This is what it means to say, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, because Jesus has the authority and the power to set us free. That's what is objectively true for every Christian. Now, the problem we face is not the objective fact of our freedom, but the subjective experience of slavery. I mean, we keep going back and living like slaves for some reason. Here's what Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is a perpetual problem. We're free... But then we go and we submit ourselves to a yoke of slavery. Earlier I mentioned the exodus of Israel from Egypt. When they crossed the Red Sea, they were free. They were objectively free. But if you've read the story or the rest of the Old Testament, you know that they submitted themselves to a yoke of slavery again and again. You could sum up their entire experience by saying you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the people, right? They had this slavery mindset. That's our problem too. The Son has set us free, but we keep submitting ourselves to a yoke of slavery. And maybe you say, well, that's just true for unbelievers. It's interesting, though, to remember who Jesus said these words to. Look again at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So the truth is, we haven't just been redeemed. We've been adopted into God's family. We are free. 
We're no longer slaves. Therefore, we shouldn't live like it. I know they've remade the movie, but I, when I think about that, I think about the 1982 movie, Annie. The basic plot of the movie is that Annie is an orphan in an inner city orphanage run by the cruel Miss Hannigan. She spends her days in, hard, in kind of a hard knocks life doing menial tasks. She's basically a slave. And everything changes when she's delivered into the gleaming mansion of the billionaire, Mr. Warbucks. And when Annie first arrives at the mansion, she's mesmerized by its size and its beauty and by the scores of cheerful servants scurrying about. Her hostess asks her, well, Annie, what would you like to do first? Annie misunderstands. She says she'd probably like to start with the floors. Right? She's thinking she needs to get to work. She's a servant. The hostess just wants to know what fun thing Annie wants to do in her new life. And that's what's true for us. We've been set free by Jesus. We no longer need to submit to a yoke of slavery. So I started at the top just talking a little bit about our self-perception and reality. And maybe you think you're free, but you're not. I mean, maybe when you really stop to think about it, you can see all sorts of things that you are bound to or in bondage to. But maybe it's the case that you're free and you're just not living like it. I mean, you're not taking this truth that Jesus has told you. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we need to make sure that our practice lines up with what is objectively true about us. And what is objectively true about anyone who has put their faith in Jesus is that he has set us free from whatever might bind us. So let's live like that. Let's live in the freedom that he gives us. We will know the truth, Jesus, and he will set us free. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the tremendous freedom that we enjoy through the power of your spirit. Lord, we've been set free. We pray that we would no longer live as though we are slaves. We would no longer be in bondage to either the prince of the power of this age or to our passions and desires that wage war within us, but that we would live according to the the life of liberty found in your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.